Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. And we're actually going to read the whole chapter today. And it will serve more as an introduction to this, to this chapter. And really, it's Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10, these uh, four chapters really are the, a lot of the heart of what he's dealing with in terms of the purpose of the book of Hebrews. And they are very rich and deep theologically. So I've got no idea how long it will take us to go through 7, 8, 9, and 10. To be determined. So to be determined. But it'll, Mr. Michael told me, take as long as it takes. So it'll take as long as it takes. So let's read Hebrews chapter 7. And then we'll pray and make some observations. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 1 says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all by translation of his name king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi, who received the priest's office, have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although they are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in, the case, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witness that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection was through the, the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes a change of law as well. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priest. And this is clearer still. Another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. But on the one hand, there is the setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, 
holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath appoints a son made perfect forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we set forth and embark, Lord, upon these mysteries and these glorious truths, Lord, reveal to us in your sacred word. Lord, we ask for wisdom. Lord, we ask for understanding. Lord, we ask that you might increase our faith. Lord, that we would have an even greater understanding of all that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ does for us as our great high priest. Lord, that without him taking up this office, Lord, there would be no forgiveness of sins. There would be no atonement. Lord, we would be dead in our sins and under your wrath. So, Lord, help us to see and to understand, Lord, how great this work of salvation, Lord, this mystery of redemption that you have brought forth, Lord, that you revealed in human history and in your word, and, Lord, how all these things you put together in order to make it clear without any dispute that there is only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Lord, may you give us an even greater confidence in him, Lord, that we would see and understand that if we have put our faith in Christ, that he is able to save to the uttermost all those who believe in him. So, Lord, teach us today, and Lord, help us to understand, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we are here again in Hebrews chapter 7, where the apostle begins this discourse on a topic he first introduced in chapter 5, verse 10. We remember in chapter 5, verse 10, he said there of Jesus Christ that he was designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. The book of Hebrews is primarily unfolding for us the superiority of Jesus Christ over everything else, and specifically over the high priest that came from the Levitical priesthood. How it is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the worship of God instituted by the Lord through the prophet Moses in the Old Covenant. We are dealing with this issue. What is the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? Right, what, is, uh, what happens or what changes when Christ comes into the world? The coming of Jesus Christ into the world, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. How do these things relate to what was instituted by Moses under the old covenant? Right, a proper understanding of the relationship between these two, between the law of Moses and the gospel of Jesus Christ between the high priesthood from the tribe of Levi and the high priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. We must understand these things properly if we're going to interpret the Bible correctly. Nearly every, every error that has arisen among men to the ruin of all sound doctrine risen in part because of some misinterpretation or some misapplication of the relationship between the Old and New Covenant. 
great errors have arisen and persist in the church on one side or the other. Right? There are some who see no distinction between the old and the new, who conflate these two covenants together so that there is little to no difference between the, ma- the way that we live and worship God under the new covenant. Every law, every ordinance, every ceremony given by Moses is still in force today. And there are those who would insist, who would say that we are sinning if we're not keeping the festivals of the old covenant. We are sinning if we're not following the dietary and the food restrictions of the old covenant. That all of those things are still in force today and that we need to follow them. This was an issue that arose in the early days of the church. The Jerusalem Council convened in Acts chapter 15 was addressing this very issue. What is the relationship of the Old Covenant to the Christians? Is it necessary for the Gentiles to be circumcised in order for them to be saved? And there was a group there in the early church that was insisting that they do such things. On the other side, there are those who see only a separation, a distinction between the Old and the New Covenant, who would go so far as to say that Christians do not even need to read the Old Testament Scriptures, that those things are not for us, but were only for Israel, and then they regulate everything in the Old through the trash heap. This is what we don't want to do. We don't want to fall to the right, and we don't want to fall into the left. And Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10 are given to us so that we might know the will of God and walk in the straight ways of the Lord. It is an error of this type an error arising of the relationship between the old and the new that the apostle is addressing to the Hebrew Christians. Namely, it is their reluctancy to depart from the the Levitical priesthood and the ordinances of worship that were instituted by Moses under the old covenant. That issue is what he is addressing. It is their reluctancy, their hesitancy to come to an understanding of these things. They are doubting, they're dull of hearing in regards to these issues. Now, it is without dispute that the Levitical priesthood was established by God through the prophet Moses. This is not something that man invented on his own. Aaron did not appoint himself as high priest over Israel. He was appointed by God to that role through the prophet Moses. It is without dispute that the tabernacle and the temple were instituted by the Lord. God is the one who gave to them the instructions for the building of those elements and their worship was restricted to those things. That without them, they could not worship God properly. Dispute that the entire sacrificial system was given to the nation of Israel by God through the prophet Moses, and that they were to offer these sacrifices as a part of their daily, weekly, yearly worship to God. These institutions and various ceremonies associated with the worship of Israel did not originate in the mind of men, in the will of men. They came directly from God. They were the rule that God gave to them by which their worship was regulated and conducted under the old covenant. And they bore the mark of divine authority. They were not optional for the worship of Israel. They were obligatory so that they should not carelessly be set aside. In fact, if these institutions are still in force today, then we are committing great sin against God. Because we're not worshiping him according to his laws, according to his rules, according to what God has commanded. And obviously we, as the Christian church, 
We are not following and observing the system of worship that was established at Mount Sinai. We have not sought out a priest from the tribe of Levi. I'm not from the tribe of Levi, nor am I a priest in that way. We have no altar here to offer sacrifices to God. None of you brought a sheep, right, a lamb, a goat, a bull today to come and offer to God as a sacrifice. But there was a time when the people were required to do such things. And to come without those things would be to commit a sin against God. And if God's word cannot be altered, right? If heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away, then on what authority the Christian church have the right to set aside such ordinances and ceremonies of worship that have been instituted by God? This is the whole point that he's making in the book of Hebrews. This is what the apostle is seeking to display, namely, what is Jesus Christ? And how it is specifically that Jesus Christ as a high priest is superior in every way to the priest from the tribe of Levi. And when there is a change in the priesthood, then there is also necessarily a change in the law as it regulates the worship of God's people. That we are not without re-justification and divine sanction to set aside these things because we have it in the authority of God. John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verses 39 to 46. John 5, 39 to 46. Again, this was one of the problems with the Jews in Jesus' day and in many days, is that they were not interpreting the Scriptures Christologically, in light of Christ and the coming of Christ. And if you're not doing that, if Jesus is the focus point of all of the Scriptures, and you're not seeing Christ in Scripture, then you're not reading it right. You're completely missing the point. John 5, 39. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourself. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and do not seek the glory that is from God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father, the one who accuses you is this, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Moses wrote about Christ. So what Moses wrote in relation to the priesthood, in relation to the tabernacle, in relation to the sacrifices, in relation to all of those things, must be understood and interpreted in light of Christ, in light of Jesus Christ and what he will accomplish. And the intent of the apostle here in Hebrews chapter 7 is to display the excellence and the dignity of, of the priesthood of Jesus Christ in contrast to the priesthood of Aaron that came from the tribe of Levi, right? For if the priesthood of Christ is not more excellent than the priesthood of Levi, if there are more blessings and benefits from the priest under the old covenant, then why would we leave them for someone else? If there is a greater degree of blessing and benefit with those priests, then we should continue to go to them, 
But if, on the other hand, the priesthood of Christ is superior in every way to Aaron, if the benefits and the blessings and the advantages of having Jesus as high priest are more excellent than what they have, than what anything that they experienced under the old covenant, any who experienced those serving from Aaron on their behalf, then why would we cling to Aaron and his priesthood when our superior is available to us? This is a matter of utmost importance, right? Since the entrance of sin into the world. Man cannot worship God. Man cannot be reconciled to God. Man cannot have his sins forgiven without the ministry of a high priest. A high priest is necessary for men to worship God after the entrance of sin into the world. After the fall, there is no acceptable worship of God without the ministry and service of a high priest. Sin requires atonement, and atonement requires sacrifice, and sacrifice requires a high priest. This is the whole point of the high priest. He is appointed by God on behalf of men in order to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews 5, verses 1 to 4. Hebrews 5, 1-4 says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes this honor on himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. Who is the high priest who can take away the sins of the people? Who is the high priest who can bring about atonement and reconciliation with God? Who is the high priest who can serve as a mediator between God and man? Who is able to reconcile sinful man to a holy God? Can the high priest from the family of Aaron, accomplish these things? Or is there the need of another priest to arise? A greater high priest who abides forever, who is not according to the order of Aaron, but one who has arisen according to the order of another priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. This is what he will demonstrate. The complete superiority of Jesus Christ as high priest over and above those high priests that came from the family of Aaron. The seed of this truth was planted 400 years before the establishment of Aaron's priesthood. Before the giving of the law, before the establishment, and without any respect or reference to the Levitical priesthood, God sought to set forth a symbol, a shadow, a type of the priesthood of Christ in Melchizedek, who on all accounts was superior to the Levitical priesthood. God planted in Genesis 14, the foundation was laid for the abolishment of the priesthood of Aaron. 400 years before it was established, God already had signaled to the people that Aaron's priesthood was temporary, that momentary, that it was only for a time, that it was intended always to be for a period of time until the time of reformation should occur, until the high priest 
would arise according to the order of Melchizedek. And when that high priest arose, then what needs to happen to Aaron's priesthood? What needs to happen to all of the symbols and institutions and ordinances associated with that priesthood and with that type of worship there in the Old Covenant? Well, just as John the Baptist said, must increase and I must decrease. John 3, verse 30. Aaron's priest increase, it must fade away. It must pass away. It must be done away with. And the priesthood of Christ must stand solely alone by itself because only his priesthood is able to actually result in the forgiveness of sins and bring about reconciliation between the people and between God. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. We'll be reminded of these things that he's already said in relationship to this priesthood. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all of his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Here, Moses in relationship to Christ, and by way of implication, this would apply to Aaron as well. Moses and Aaron were both faithful in God's house, but were they faithful as sons? He says they were servants, servants in the house of God, but neither Moses nor Aaron was the son of the house. Jesus is the only son who is faithful over the house. The house was put in charge of managers or stewards until the Son would come, until the appearing of the Son of God, in which case those managers and stewards would take a step away. They would take the step back, and then who would come to the forefront? The Son would, right? The Christ would. Only He can stand as high priest over the people of God. And when He arises, then there can be no competition. There cannot be another priesthood that is running and serving and ministering in concurrence with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Only He can atone for our sins. Only He can reconcile us to God. This is what He is dealing with in Hebrews chapter 7. Let's read then Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1, and we'll deal with some issues today in terms of interpretation and in terms of this person. Uh, just so that we can get all these things out of the way at the forefront of the beginning, and then we won't uh, delve into them extensively as we begin our interpretation and teaching on the passage itself. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1 says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Here in this opening part of Hebrews chapter 7, the apostle is describing the person of Melchizedek. Everything hinges on our understanding of this man and who he is and how it is that he represents Christ. He's going back to this biblical narrative and bringing to our attention specific details about his person 
and about his interaction with our father Abraham, with Abraham, the father of the faith. In verses 4 to 10 of Hebrews 7, he's then going to draw out implications concerning this relationship of Melchizedek to the priesthood of Aaron, giving irrefutable evidence from the Old Testament, even from the prophet Moses, that the priesthood of Melchizedek is superior to the priesthood of Aaron. This is what Moses is writing about. Moses is laying these things down even before they are brought to our attention. Here, he's dealing with this Melchizedek, for this Melchizedek. Now, we know that this Melchizedek is the Melchizedek of Genesis chapter 14. This is where he appears in the biblical record concerning Abraham, right? Abraham and his life in the genealogy of him. We remember that after the separation of Abraham and Lot, Lot went to live in the valley of the Jordan near the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and those cities there. And over the course of time, four kings came, made war against the king of Sodom and Gomorrah and their allies. And these four kings were successful in their war, defeated the king of Sodom and his allies, plundered their cities, taking both goods and people. And one of those people taken captive was Lot, who was the nephew of Abraham. And then this event came to the attention of Abraham, in which case he had to do something about it. Turn to Genesis 14, and we'll pick up then in Genesis 14, verse 13. And we'll read down through verse 24. Genesis chapter 14. Verses 13 to 24. It says, Then a fugitive came and told Abram, Abram, the Hebrew. Now, he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and brother of Anir, and these were allies with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods, and he also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions, and also the women and the people. Then after his return from the defeat of Ched or Laramir, the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And he gave him a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong, or anything that is yours, for fear that you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me, Aner and Eschol and Mamre, and let them take their share. This is the Melchizedek, and this is the account that the apostle brings forward in Hebrews chapter 7. And he is bringing him forward to prove two things. First, that there was a priesthood that existed, 
before the priesthood of Aaron. Right? This is without refute. That this priesthood existed. He was priest of God Most High. And this priesthood existed before the priesthood of Aaron. And then secondly, this priesthood is superior to the priesthood of Aaron. The priesthood of Melchizedek is a greater priesthood than the priesthood of Aaron. And all of this argument hinges upon what took place in Genesis chapter 14. Now, Melchizedek is a very enigmatic figure. He is shrouded in mystery. There is much wonder and amazement and questions concerning him. Right? When we read Genesis chapter 14, it is intended for us to take a, a double take, right? to be wondering, to stop and to ponder, right? who is this man? And where did he come from? Right? And where did he go from here? Because he just peers out of nowhere. Here he is. And then all of a sudden, he's gone. Nothing more is mentioned about him after this point. Nothing before this point and nothing after this point is mentioned in terms of his life. And as far as we know, right, from the text, Abraham had no interaction with him before and Abraham had no interaction with him afterwards. But during Abraham's sojourning in the land of Canaan, there was this man. There was this king of Salem, this priest of God most high, who appears for a moment, right, only three verses in the book of Genesis given to describe his person and his interaction with Abraham. And then he is gone and nothing more is said concerning him. And this event took place roughly 1800 years before Christ, about 1800 BC during the life of Abraham. And it is written down in scripture, inscripturated, in about 1400 BC, from the time of Christ, during the time of Moses, and delivered to the people. And all of this is significant, right? Because it all took place before Sinai, before the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, before uh, God had fulfilled the promises even to Abraham. This is before the birth of Isaac, before the birth of Jacob. Uh, before the birth of Levi, right? Before the formation of the nation of Israel, before the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, before the establishment of the Levitical priesthood and all of those institutions and all of the ordinances associated with that worship. Melchizedek is introduced, a brief record is given of his interaction with Abraham, and then nothing more is said concerning him for 900 years. Silence concerning him for 900 years from Abraham's time and then 500 years from the time of Moses. And then, again, out of nowhere, during the reign of King David, years after Abraham, after Israel had been delivered from Egypt, after they had received the covenant at Sinai, after they had been brought into the promised land, years after the establishment of the Levitical priesthood. That priesthood had been ministering for 500 years when we come to the point of David. After the tabernacle has been located in Jerusalem and the worship of God has been established there. During the height of the ministry of the Levitical priest, King David, by the spirit of prophecy, mentions Melchizedek in reference to the Messiah. Psalm 110. Psalm 110, a psalm that we're familiar with, and we should be familiar with. 
Psalm 110, we'll read verses 1 to 7. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth, will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside, and therefore he will lift up his head. Now, this psalm, without any doubt, is a messianic psalm. It is predicting the Messiah, the Christ, his kingship, and also his priesthood. And it is significant because here, in this one psalm, you have his kingship and his priesthood united in this one person. These offices in the Old Covenant were separated. The king came from the tribe of Judah. The priest came from the tribe of Levi. A king could not be the priest, and the priest was not the king. There was a separation of these offices. Yet here in Psalm 110, these two offices are united in this one person, the one who is sitting at the right hand of God. David's Lord, who the Lord says, sit at my right hand until I make an enemy your, your feet. And this is significant because in Melchizedek, we have the union of these two offices. He is both king of Salem and he is also priest of God Most High. And to show and prove that this is to be taken as a messianic psalm, Matthew 22, Matthew 22, we see here in verses 41 to 46 that even the unbelieving Jews with the Old Testament, even they understood that Psalm 110 was messianic, that they believed that this was speaking of the Christ, the Christ. Matthew 22, verses 41 to 46. It says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day ask him another question. There, Jesus puts this question to them, right? Who is the Christ? Whose son is he? So there is no doubt that the Old Testament, in their mind, teaches the coming Christ and that the coming Christ would be the son of David. And they know and they understand these things. We know this as well from Matthew chapter 2. When the wise men come, and they are seeking the Christ, the king, where is he to be born? The religious leaders know exactly where the Old Testament predicts the birth of the Christ. And they tell them, Bethlehem, this is where these things are going to take place. So they knew and understood that the Old Testament teaches that the Christ is coming into the world, and that when the Christ comes into the world, that he would be the son of David. And they also understood that Psalm 110 is a psalm speaking about the Christ. And this is why the Lord puts this question to them. 
If he is David's son, then how can he be his Lord? And the only possible solution is, is if he is also divine. In terms of his human nature, he is David's son. But in terms of his divine nature, he is David's Lord. And this is why David, in Psalm 110, verse 1, says, The Lord said to my Lord. The Lord, God the Father, said to my Lord, the Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then there in Psalm 110, when the Lord is speaking to David's Lord, the Christ, he is swearing an oath to him. God the Father swearing an oath to make him a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That the Christ, in addition to being David's son, and sitting on the throne of David would also be a priest forever, but not according to the order of Levi, but according to another order, the order that was introduced in Genesis 14, the order of Melchizedek. This person, and specifically this priesthood, from so many years before is mentioned in Psalm 110 in reference to the priesthood of the Christ. And again, No doubt this is given, then, to stimulate the minds of the faithful so that they make careful searches and inquiries into these things. What does this mean? What is its significance? Right? How does this relate to the rules and order of worship that were established by Moses? Right? If God brings a priest after another order, then what happens to the priest according to the order of Aaron? You can't have these two things serving at the same time, right? No doubt, again, these questions are in their mind. They're asking, they're wondering, they're pondering these things. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, tell us that the prophets made careful search and inquiry into these things, right? These are the things that they are seeking to know and seeking to understand. 1 Peter 1.10 says, As for this salvation... The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in the things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. They, the prophets, are making careful search and inquiries into these things. What do these things mean? Right? What is the understanding? What is the purpose of these things that God is bringing forward, that God is mentioning? And one of those things would be, who is this Melchizedek? And how does this priesthood relate to our priesthood, right? To the priesthood of Aaron. And then that brings us to Hebrews chapter 7. Genesis 14, Melchizedek is mentioned. Psalm 110 verse 4, he is mentioned. And then in chapter 7 of Hebrews, where the apostle, by the Holy Spirit, by the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, shines upon us the person and the priesthood of Melchizedek and unfolds for us the manifold wisdom of God hidden in this person for so many ages. The apostle explains the significance of Melchizedek and his priesthood. He explains how it applies to Jesus Christ. 
he explains what it means concerning the old covenant and the priesthood of Aaron. In this truth, which had been hidden for so many ages, and which clearly manifests the certain future introduction of another and better priesthood, is brought to light by the apostle. It was hidden in a mystery, but now it has been clearly revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is one of the great advantages that we have in living in the new covenant, living after the completion of the canon of Scripture. We have the final, authoritative, Holy Spirit-inspired interpretation of the Old Testament. We have the mysteries of the Old Testament explained to us by our holy apostles. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, this is what the Apostle Paul says here. That his ministry was to explain, to unfold these mysteries concerning salvation. And this is what he's doing for us. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I, made, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through him, through faith in him. Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory." There, he speaks of bringing to light the administration of the mystery which for ages had been hidden in God who created all things. There are these mysteries in the Old Testament that he is bringing to light, that he is explaining, right? Not that they had no understanding of these things or that it was so obscure that they were believing in something else. However, there is an element of mystery, an obscurity of darkness that was there upon them. And it is the gospel, it is the appearing of Jesus Christ, which shines light onto these things so that the full meaning and clarity is given to us through the holy apostles. The New Testament apostles shine light upon the Old Testament prophets so that what was revealed in dark, obscure, mysterious ways is explained with great light, with great clarity, and great certainty. John Owen, the Puritan pastor and theologian, said this. He said, Truth was stored up in the prophecies, promises, institutions of the Old Testament, but so stored up as that it was in a great measure hidden also. 
but was brought forth to light and made manifest in the gospel. Also, another theologian, B.B. Warfield, said the Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished but dimly lit. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before, but it brings it out into clearer view. It brings it into a clearer understanding of what was before dimly understood. Now, in this, we're not saying that the Old Testament was teaching one way of salvation and the New Testament is teaching another way of salvation. Or that the Old Testament was wrong concerning who God is and the New Testament is correcting or contradicting what was taught in the Old Testament. But the truths found there in the Old Testament are given greater confirmation, greater clarity, greater certainty by the light of the New Testament. The truths, the doctrines, the faith in the Old Testament, the content of the Old Testament and the New Testament are one and the same. But the truths in the Old Testament were hidden to some degree. They were perceived, but like through clouds or like through a fog where you see the way before you, but it is also hidden in this fog or in this cloud. But when that cloud is dispersed, then you see clearly around you and you have a better understanding of where you're going and what is taking place. And this is what has happened in the shining of the light of the gospel that comes in the appearing of the Son of Man. The Old Testament saints had sufficient revelation and sufficient knowledge into the will of God and into the gospel to be saved by grace through faith in Christ. However, our situation in which we have come we have an even greater confirmation of these things, even greater clarity of these mysteries, an even greater understanding into the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which means then, of all people in the history of the world, who should be the most grateful? We should, right? We should be very grateful. It is a great blessing to live in the time in which we live, to have access to the writings of the prophet Moses and the prophet David, and the prophet Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and the rest of the prophets, but also to have access to the writings of the New Testament apostles, of the apostle Paul, and of the apostle John, and of the apostle Peter, and of the apostle here to the Hebrews. This is a great blessing that we have to build our faith, not only on the foundation of the prophets, but also on the foundation of the apostles as well. Ephesians 2, 19 to 22 says this. It says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing up into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Our faith is built on that foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Not merely the prophets, not merely the apostles, but built upon both. And this is the advantage we have over them. They had an advantage over the rest of the world. As it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. God gave his oracles to them, 
He did not give them to the Egyptians, to the Assyrians, to the Babylonians, or to any other nation. He did not deal thus with any other nation. They lived in darkness. They lived in futility. They worshipped idols and were without God and without hope in this present world. They had the oracles of God, and this was a great blessing to them. They possessed Genesis chapter 14, where Melchizedek is mentioned. They possessed Psalm 110, where it is mentioned that the Christ will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. But isn't it an even greater blessing to possess not only Genesis 14 and not only Psalm 110 verse 4, but also to possess Hebrews chapter 7, where the apostle unfolds all of these things and shows us the significance of everything that took place in ages past. And so, an even greater of measure of blessing has been given to us. And we know from Luke 12, 48, from everyone to whom much is given, much will be required. And to whom they entrust much of him, they will ask all the more. If God charged Israel with ingratitude, with a gross violation, because they failed to make improvement on the oracles that were entrusted to them, then how much more will we be held accountable if we fail to make improvement upon the oracles entrusted to us? Because we possess not only their oracles, but we also possess the oracles of the apostles. We also have the writings of the New Testament. And so there ought to be within us an even greater measure of faith, an even greater measure of holiness, an even greater measure of obedience and faithfulness to God. These are the things that God expects of us, upon whom the end of the ages have come. Now, one last point by way of introduction concerning Melchizedek. I told you there's a lot to deal with here. You can't read this passage without wondering and without asking exactly who is this person. And again, as I mentioned earlier, it is very mysterious. He is an enigmatic figure who appears suddenly. And there has been much time and much devotion and writing on this topic throughout the years. And there are many, many opinions as who the identity of this mysterious figure is. The common opinion amongst the Jews is that Melchizedek is Shem, who was the son of Noah. Others have said he is an angel who is in human form. Others that he is the pre-incarnate son of God. Others that he is the Holy Ghost. Others that he is God the Father. Others that he is a Canaanite king descended from him. Others is that he is a king descended from Japheth. Others that he is just some man that we know very little about. And if you read 10 people, you will find likely 10 different opinions on the identity of Melchizedek. I think we can say with complete, absolute certainty that Melchizedek is Melchizedek. And that's the best way to leave it. That he is who the Bible says he is. And beyond that we're drifting into things that have not been revealed to us. The Holy Spirit could have chosen to reveal to us who the exact identity of this man is, if he is someone greater or if he is simply a man. The Holy Spirit could have done so through the prophets and the apostles. But what has been given to us is what is revealed by our prophets and by our apostles. And it says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. 
exactly who he is, other than being Melchizedek, that belongs to the Lord. But what has been revealed about him and about his priesthood and how it relates to Abraham and to the priesthood of Levi, this has been revealed to us. This is the significant thing. Now, I don't think that it's you're going out into left field to ponder or to think or to maybe even have an opinion on those things. But they should not be matters of faith upon which we build our doctrine and that we build the Christian church. But rather, we could hold those things but do so with charity toward one another so long as we're not contradicting other parts of the Bible. The purpose of the apostle in bringing up Melchizedek is not that we might know his exact identity, but that we might be instructed in our faith and in obedience to God. That we might be convinced beyond any doubt that Jesus Christ is high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, so that we would look to Christ alone as the only mediator who can reconcile us to God, the only one who can offer gifts and sacrifice for sins on our behalf that can actually atone for our sins. We can say concerning him with certainty that he was a real historical person, who had a very real encounter with Abraham recorded for us in Genesis chapter 14. He's not a mythical figure. He's not a phantom or a ghost. He is a real person who was there in human history, and Abraham spoke to him. Abraham interacted with him. And he is the most illustrious type of Christ found in all of the Old Testament scriptures. For he symbolizes in his person more than anything else about Christ both his office as priest, both his office as king, what his kingship will be like, and his divine nature as well, because he is made like the Son of God. And he is committed to us in Hebrews 7 to prove to us that a priesthood existed on this earth prior to the giving of the law, that there was a priest and a priesthood that existed before Levi was ever born before the law was ever given to Moses on Mount Sinai, before Aaron was ever ordained to be high priest over Israel. And the father of us all, the father of the faith, the father of the nation of Israel, the father of Moses and Aaron, he was inferior to this man. Melchizedek, this person, was superior without any doubt to Abraham, and that has implications for everything that comes from him. There was this Melchizedek. He was a priest. He received a priesthood not by way of inheritance, not because of his heritage, not because of his genealogy. He received it by an extraordinary call from God. And this priesthood must be superior to the law, and it must be superior to the priesthood of Aaron established in the law. What comes later cannot nullify or overthrow what comes before. This is the principle established in Galatians chapter 3, verses 17 to 18, relating to these same issues, right? Galatians is dealing with all this stuff as well. Galatians, Hebrews, Romans are in large part dealing with this relationship between the old and the new and are crucial for our foundation and our understanding of interpreting the Bible and formulating our doctrine and the teachings of the church. Galatians 3.17. What I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant 
previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. The law cannot nullify the covenant that God made with Abraham that was ratified on the basis of a promise. God already established that before the law was ever given. So whatever the law means and whatever happened 430 years later, it must be understood, it must be interpreted in light of what God had already done and what he had already established as true in the person of Abraham. That salvation is by the grace of God. It comes by the promise of God, the free favor of God given to men, and it cannot come by works of the law, by our own obedience through the law. So that law must be understood then in light of the promise given to Abraham. Well, the same principle applies here. The law must uh, that came 430 years afterwards cannot invalidate a priesthood that already existed. The law regulating the priesthood of Levi cannot be superior and cannot invalidate this priesthood that existed before the giving of the law. The priesthood of Aaron must be interpreted in light of the priesthood of Melchizedek. And that means his priesthood must be temporary. Aaron's priesthood was always intended to be temporary, to be a custodian, until the great high priest was revealed. And that great high priest has been revealed. And who is that great high priest? But our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And with him serving before God on our behalf, we can have absolute confidence, absolute certainty that all of our sins have been forgiven and that we can draw near to God in full assurance of faith. As it says in Hebrews 4, 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He is a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He serves in the tabernacle, not on earth, but in the one in heaven, the one that is not of this creation, the one that was not made by human hands. He offers gifts and sacrifice for our sins. Not the blood of bulls and goats, but his own body and his own blood he has offered for us. He and he alone is the high priest who can reconcile sinful men to a holy God. And with him ministering on our behalf, we can have absolute certainty that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. With him there in beyond the veil ministering for us, we can have complete confidence that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So then let us hold fast to our confession. Let us fix our faith upon him and upon him alone. Jesus Christ, high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have given to us, Lord, such assurance. Lord, as an immovable rock, 
an impenetrable fortress, Lord, that can never be shaken and can never be taken from us. Lord, if there are doubts, if there are uncertainties, Lord, if there is any trepidation, it comes not from your end, Lord, but it comes because of our own weaknesses, because of our own sin. But Lord, we pray that you would overcome these things and that, Lord, you would give to us a sure conviction, Lord, a certain hope, Lord, that we would be so convinced that Jesus Christ is our high priest, that he has arisen after the order of Melchizedek, that we who have put our hope in him, Lord, that we will not be disappointed, that he and he alone is able to save to the uttermost those who believe in him. Lord, show us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, that there is no charge that can be brought against us, that there is nothing that can separate us from your love that we have with Jesus serving as our high priest. We thank you, Father, that you have provided such a priest, spotless, who is holy, one who is separated from sinners, one who who has attained this priesthood by the power of an indestructible life, Lord, one who has received it in an oath from you, and Lord, one that will never step down from this office, but has it forever, perpetually, that with Christ ministering in the tabernacle, not made with human hands, that is not of this creation, the one in heaven, and with him there, seated at your right hand, at Lord, life forevermore. And Lord, this is the hope that we entertain, that where he is, there we will be as well, and that we will be in your presence for so many ages, yet has been brought to light through the appearing of the Son of Man. Lord, what great blessing that we stand in. Lord, as Gentiles, to so Father, may it produce within us, Lord, a greater love for you, Lord, a greater faith, Lord, a greater zeal for holiness, Lord, that we might desire to Jesus Christ. Lord, that we might ponder and, Lord, meditate in wonder of everything that he does on our behalf and how, Lord, make us know these things even now in this life when, Lord, we have a body of weakness and when we do not have the ability, Lord, even to comprehend the full measure of this.